My fault. Here we go. Yeah. That's on me. I think I broke it. <laughs> Not kidding. Maybe it'll stay together. Let's just clip it right there. There. That's safe. All right, let's do that. All right, good evening. It is so good to see everybody here tonight. I know you're excited to go back to school, right? You're all excited about that. Um, I want to begin uh, by saying it is an exciting time in the congregation. I know that this morning an important announcement was made and uh, looks like a lot of people here this morning. I looked at the attendance uh, when I came in tonight and it's, it, it just seems like everybody's all back together, doesn't it? And uh, everybody's getting ready to go back to school. And it, it was a great time to make an announcement now that our church family is, is kind of all back in one place. I saw a lot of our college students uh, come back in. It's good to see Braxton Thomas back from his internship. Glad he could be here tonight. And uh, it's just a great time in the Mount Juliet Church. We, we are getting ready uh, to, to look in, into that process of finding some men who would make great elders, some great leaders in this congregation. And uh, we want to we ask for your prayers in that process, uh, obviously. And I heard uh, that Tim Martin did a fantastic job this morning uh, looking into the Word of God and talking about the importance of, elder, of an eldership. And so please be prayerful as we continue uh, in that search and in the coming weeks as candidates' uh, names are brought up and as we continue to pray about that, uh, we want God's hand to be in it. What a fantastic summer we've had. It really has been amazing. And I, I think I've got a picture maybe. Uh, that really is a, a really great picture of some fantastic interns this summer. And uh, what a joy it has been to work with those guys. They have done a fantastic job. It's also been Jody Marble's first summer here, and he's not an intern, but maybe he felt like one this summer after just running all over the place, and he did a fantastic job too. I'm so grateful for him and his work. Uh, what, a, what a blessing it is to work at Mount Juliet. Uh, this, this really is my dream job, to be honest with you, and I love working at this congregation, and I'm so grateful for the interns and all the work that they've done. And uh, tonight is the last night that they'll be here. So I hope you'll take just a minute if you get a chance. I know it's a little crazy tonight, uh, but if you get a chance to, to bid them farewell. Abby Latham had to leave this morning, uh, but the other three are still here. So we are excited uh, to, to bring that chapter to a close. We'll, we'll miss them, uh, but it really has been a fantastic summer. I was a weird kid when I was little. I think we've established that. Um, when I was little, I really liked search and find books. Did y'all like know what that was. I, I, I think I can do a good job explaining what search and find books are just by this picture. Did anybody ever do this? Look, look for Waldo when you were a kid. Do the Where's Waldo books. When I was a, a kid at Hamilton Elementary School, there was, only, there was only three books I would ever check out from the library. One were joke books, no surprise. Uh, two, scary stories. And three, Where's Waldo books. Now, if you could go back in the card catalog, that's probably me on every book there. Those, those are the three categories of book I would read. Uh, I don't know if you count Waldo reading or not, but I would fly through the Waldo books. I loved, I loved searching for Waldo. I had, I had kind of a knack for that. I was, really, I was pretty good at finding Waldo until I was introduced to, uh, to the Land of Wally's page. 
and Waldo book. Some of you are remembering this and going, I hated that page in the book. And it really was confusing because there was so much going on in this picture and it looks like there's a thousand Waldos. But what you really had to do closely, you had to kind of read the box at the top. There's one Waldo in that picture that's not wearing a shoe. And that's the actual Waldo. The rest of them are just fake. All right. And so some of you saw that and go, well, I found Waldo. There he is a hundred times. There's one Waldo. Here's what's interesting about the Where's Waldo books. If you really take time to study the page, there's kind of, there's a lot of subplots in Waldo. Like if you really look at the sketches, there's a lot of little side art and like things going on. And like the guy who illustrated it uh, really took some time to think, Ronald Dahl, did I make that up? Why is that name popped into my head? Anyway, or did he write something like Dr. Doolittle? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, but uh, I, which if you really pay close attention, you'll see there's a lot going on in this photo. There's a whole lot going on, but really it's all a distraction. There's one purpose to the book. It's all about looking for that one person. It's all about looking for that one person. It's the beginning of the school year. A lot of times we think about when we send mission teams to El Salvador, we might have a special prayer for them. Tonight's a special prayer because a lot of you guys are getting ready to go back into the mission field at your school. Teachers, it's a mission field. Students, it's a mission field. An opportunity to reach souls. Tonight, we're going to talk about that. As we begin a new school year, what are some things we need to remember about our goals evangelistically? What are some things we need to remember when it comes to looking at people the way that God wants us to look at people? Here it is, one point this evening. If you get this, it's, it's really the whole point. If you remember this sentence, here's everything you need to know tonight. We must become people looking for people. We must become people looking for people. Well, how do we do that exactly? How do we become people looking for people? What, what is that going to require of me? What does that look like? What do I have to do to be like that? What we're going to do this evening is break down that sentence on the screen because every word in that sentence is very, very important when it comes to better understanding our role in evangelism. The first part of that sentence, the first word is the word we. We must become people looking for people. Whose job is it? Your immediate response is to say, well, obviously it's Christians. It's our job. Well, Jesus makes it pretty clear in Matthew 28 that his disciples are supposed to go make disciples. Where he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I think all of us Christians would say, well, of course it's our job to look for people. But before we get carried away... Let's really consider something. If it's really my job to look for people, am I doing my job? What if on Monday you go to your workplace and all day you did absolutely nothing? Some of you would love a job like that. <laughs> I get paid, do absolutely nothing. Tuesday rolls around. You clock in, you don't do absolutely anything all day long. Wednesday comes along, the same thing. You don't do anything. 
I would say there'd be a Thursday. I don't know if there'd be a Thursday at your job. I want to ask you, if you gave the same effort to your secular job that you give to your spiritual job, how long would you keep it? If you gave the same effort to your secular job that you give to your spiritual job, how long would you keep it? I know this sounds really basic, but if we are indeed Christ's laborers, and if we are indeed Christ's servants, and if we are really workers, shouldn't we be working? When was the last time you made a conscious effort to carry out the Great Commission, to be a person looking for a person? Paul felt a tremendous burden of responsibility when it came to the idea of sharing Jesus and telling people about him. He said in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I want to show you another story about becoming people looking for people. You've probably seen this before, but it's Ezekiel 33, a very powerful story, a very powerful, sobering passage in the word of God. If you want to swipe there on your phone, turn there in your Bibles, Ezekiel 33 verses one through nine. The word of God came to me, Ezekiel, son of man, speak to your people and say to them, if I bring the sword upon a land and the people of the land, take a man from among them and make him their watchman. And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. All right, what's going on here? God gives us a picture of a watchman. What is, what's a watchman? And I feel like this is the most sarcastic definition ever. It's, it's a man who watches. Don't you love it when you ask a question like that and that's what you get. Get ready, you're going back to school. So get ready for some sarcastic answers. But a watchman, that's really what he is. He's a man who watches. He's a man who's been... There it is. I'm telling you, I broke this thing. Maybe I'll leave it alone. Okay. It's a man who watches. A watchman's a man who watches. Back in those days, they didn't have um, the Coast Guard. They didn't have GPS. They didn't have sonar or radar. But what they had were men who were positioned strategically around the wall of a city and in the towers of a city because that was the border of their territory. And the job of those guys was to get up in the tower, to get up along the wall and keep watch over the city. What was coming? Was an enemy coming? Was an enemy approaching? And in verses three through five, he lays out scenario number one. He says, verse three, if, if doom or a sword or an enemy is coming and the watch... I'm so sorry, guys. There, yeah. Thank you. All right. Hello, test, test. Okay. I'm not going to break this one, I promise. Sorry. All right. Verses three through five, he lays out the first scenario. He says in verse three that if the sword is coming 
or an enemy or if, if doom is coming and the watchman sees it and sounds the alarm, the British are coming and the people ignore it. That's verse four. He says, that one's on them. It's not the watchman's fault. The watchman did his job. But then here's scenario number two, verse six. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet so that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. Scene two tells a different story. The outcome's the same for the people. Neither scenario is, is a pretty picture. They both die. Scene one and scene two, they die. But the reason for their death is, is vastly different. This time the watchman saw doom coming for the people, but he chose to do nothing. He chose to not warn them. He didn't care enough to tell them. He didn't do his job. And, and what happened? People met their doom. They weren't spared for, from it. He didn't care about the people he was supposed to be saving, the people he had a responsibility to warn. Church, doom is coming. Who are the people that you have a responsibility to warn? God's placed all of us in a different position along the wall. It looks different from my position than yours. Yours looks different than mine. The people that you see are different than the people that I see. But we've all got the same job. We've all got the same responsibility. We've got to warn them. Doom is coming. But the good news is you've been given the power to save them. The good news, the gospel, a message that saves. Who has God put under your watch? The rest of the story in Ezekiel 33 verse 7. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die. And you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from his way. That wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Again, God lays out two scenarios. He says, if I give you my word, my word that saves, my word that delivers people from doom, and you do not speak my word of warning, and people die in their sins, that's on you. You're going to pay for that. You're responsible. Verse 9, but if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Again, neither scenario is pretty. Neither one is great. In both scenarios, the person dies separated from God by their sins, Isaiah 59 verse 2. But in one case, the watchman is at fault. We can't make people heed the warning, but what we can do is warn them. We must become people looking for people. Next, I want you to notice the word must. We must become people looking for people. Aren't you grateful for the word must? I sure am. I am so grateful for the word must. If something is a must, thank you. If something is a must, it's not open for debate. You know, like it's, it's really not up to your interpretation. If something is a must, it's automatically important. If you must do something, you have a choice, but is it important? Well, it's already been decided that it's gonna be important enough for you to have to do it. 
If something is a must, it's really not up to your opinion. So just to give you a better feel for how that word must is used in scripture, I want to show you some must statements in the Bible, some really beautiful statements. Matthew 16, 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day raised. Jesus knew that his plan depended on him. It was something he must do. In John 3, 7, he says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Jesus says this is a non-negotiable in the kingdom of God. John 4, 24, where he says, God is spirit and those who, must worship, those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Two non-negotiables when it comes to our worship to God. Acts 4, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is a non-negotiable to salvation. There's a lot of religions out there. But Jesus himself would say, no one comes to the Father except through me. And a lot of people would have a problem with that. You know what Jesus would also say to that? Another must statement. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You don't like the fact that Jesus says he's the only way to get to heaven? You can talk to him about it one day when you meet him at judgment. We must become people looking for people. Uh, a couple of days ago, I put, I put a statement on my, uh, on my Facebook page and on Twitter, and I asked people for their help, and, and I said, finish this sentence. Christians that don't share the gospel are like, and some of you chimed in on these. So I want to share a few of these with you. You already see the first one. The Christians uh, that don't share the gospel are like a BLT with no bacon. Bacon is the best part. You know, you have to have that. Um, Christians that don't share the gospel are like, this is one of my favorites, an N64 without Ocarina of Time. Like, a few of you thought that was funny. I like that one. Um, cows that don't moo was uh, one of our kids in youth group. Bus drivers that don't drive. Christians that don't share the gospel are like a newly engaged girl ashamed to wear her diamond ring. Like a bench player, he has the cleats, the uniform, and the glove, but he's not really contributing and therefore experiences no real joy from the game. A player in name only. I apologize if you're a bench warmer. Someone else said that. I played there too. It's a great place to play. Not gonna, not gonna mess anything up. It's safe. You're good. Farmers, Christians who don't share the gospel, are like farmers who plant no seeds then expect there to be crops to harvest. Christians that don't share the gospel are like businesses that don't advertise. Because of that, they go bankrupt. Christians that don't share the gospel like new parents who don't put their pictures of their newborn on Facebook. And I think you're going to like this one. Christians that don't share the gospel are like glitter Begging for attention, but slowly disappearing with time. Slowly disappearing with time. Christians who don't share the gospel are like a dollar, a one dollar steak from Dollar Tree. It's got the title, but that's about it. I like that one. <laughs> then there's this one. Christians who don't share the gospel are like someone who has an abundance of food and a drought, but keeps it to himself because they're selfish. 
But instead of letting food go to waste while others starve, they're letting the blood of Christ go to waste while others burn. Wow. The next word, become. We must become people looking for people. Have you ever, have you ever done something before that you really did not care about? You had no desire to really do, but you did it because the person that you care about wanted to do it. In other words, men, have you ever gone to a chick flick? All right. You don't have any desire to sit and watch that movie. I'm sorry, ladies. We don't have a lot of desire to sit through a chick flick, but I tell you why we do it. Because of the chick at the flick. All right. We, there's been a lot of movies that we've had to sit through and we sit through them because we care about the person. I've never had any desire I've never had any desire to see a Nicholas Sparks-based novel, like movie, based on a novel. But I've watched a few with my wife. Why? Because those are the things you do when you want to become something to someone. Those are the things you do when you want to become something to someone. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 20 a masterful way of explaining this. He says, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, although myself was not under the law. The law of Moses, Paul was under the law of Christ, but he said I I became under the law to them that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, talking about Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. What's Paul saying? He's saying, verse 20, I recognize that the Jews had a certain way of thinking and behaving. And so I became like them in order to win them for Christ. He said, I became like one under the law, even though I wasn't under the law, just to win those who were. Paul didn't have to observe the Sabbath day. He was under the law of Christ. But we read about him doing things like this in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 4, where it says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Paul, what are you doing, man? It's Saturday. Why are you going to worship? You don't have to go to worship on Saturday anymore. He would have said, Hey, I know what day of the week it is. What am I doing? I'm going where the souls are. There are faithful Jews that need to become faithful Christians. Verse two, it says that was his custom. Well, what's that about? It's about spending time with them, building a relationship. He was going to the synagogue to become something to them. And Paul did the same thing with the Gentiles. He became something to them. He built a relationship. Why doesn't it work when we go out on the street corner and we shout at people that they need to repent, they need to follow Jesus? Why doesn't it work? Because until we become something to someone, what we say probably isn't going to matter nearly as much. We've got to spend time figuring out 
how to become something to someone. We need to spend some time figuring out what people's something is. What is their thing? What will they respond to? A great way to become something to someone is to meet their needs. Jesus lays it out in Matthew 25 where he says, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. Watch this, there's a need and it's met. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Jesus says, you saw the need and you became something to me. Who do you know right now that needs your help? Who do you know right now that needs your help? And how can you help them? What can you give to them? This past week, a lot of people from my church family here became something to me because my wife went out of town for like five days. It's like basketball with kids. If you're outnumbered, it's always bad, all right? So me versus two, it's not a good matchup. How great is this? Three families brought me meals from church. Three different ladies babysat my kids during the day and uh, one of them did laundry. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, a great way to become something to someone is to meet their needs. Another great way to become something to someone is to listen and show interest. This afternoon, I was so excited. I, uh, someone put, Hardison Moles tagged me in a picture on Facebook. And, uh, and he said, uh, he said this, these are the, the best things. That, he said, uh, this is the greatest picture that Lucas has ever seen or something. And I was thinking, that, that is so true. This is all of Lucas's favorite things in one picture. And um, so... If, if you want to become something to my kid, you just talk to him about anything in this picture that you want to. That's how you become something to him. I, I don't know anything about being in the marching band, but if you go to a band competition just to cheer for a friend, you become something to them. I don't know anything about cars. Like really, I don't know much about cars at all. But if it takes me talking to someone about cars to become something to them in order to lead them to Jesus, I'll do it. If you or someone in your family is in the hospital and someone takes the time to ask you how your family's doing, or maybe they swing by the hospital and make a visit, they become something to you. One of the big secrets to evangelism, Paul says, is figuring out how to become all things to all people. I'll never forget uh, early in youth ministry, my first full-time youth ministry job, when I met Adam. There's a kid named Adam. And Adam showed up at the church building one random Wednesday out of, the, out of the year where a couple of leaders in the youth group, and one of them was Jared Collier, was an intern here. Uh, Jared and Anthony came by the church building. They knocked on the door. I wasn't expecting them, but I let them in. Uh, and so Adam and Jared and Anthony all came in. And they were like, well, so what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. And we're just kind of hanging out at the building. No one was there. It was just us. And uh, I had this lost board game. And uh, it was like, well, let's... You want to play this game? Okay. And so we get it out. It is the worst board game ever made. It, I, don't, I don't think there's a worse game out there. It was, it was so bad. Um, it's not entertaining at all. It's nothing like the TV show. And, uh, and so we get all the pieces, and we, it seemed, seemed like we spent three hours reading how to even set the game up. We tried to figure all that out. And, um, but we had a good time. <laughs> and the next Wednesday rolled around. What do you guys want to do? Well... You want to play lost the board game? Okay. 
Another week goes by and Wednesdays became lost board game days. And a few more Wednesdays tacked on and this guy Adam started coming to church. A few more Wednesdays go by and this guy named Adam became a Christian. If I have to play a boring board game to become something to someone, I'll do it. We must become people looking for people. We must become people looking for people. And now we must become people looking for people. People looking for people. I I won't spend a great deal of time about this because I don't have a lot of time. But when you think about the way that Jesus did ministry, isn't it amazing how he was able to just look around and see people and see what was going on in their life? We read about him one day, he just kind of looks, standing around and looks over and there's a tree and there's a guy in the tree. The story of Zacchaeus. He's thirsty, he goes to the well and he's there and he's kind of waiting for a drink. Samaritan woman shows up. He's walking through a really busy intersection, a really busy crowd, and a woman who's bleeding touches him. He stops and he turns around. Who touched me? Another great story. Compassion is the ingredient in every great Jesus story. You see, there's a lot of people, you think about the story of the Good Samaritan. The Levite and the priest, they saw the man, but only one had compassion. We've got to be people looking for people in a compassionate way. Finally this evening, we must become people looking for people. There's a question on the screen. No, there's a David Shannon scuba man on the screen. Keep going. One more. One more. There it is. Who will you engage? Tonight as you think about getting ready to start a new school year, Maybe lately there's been somebody that's on your mind that you'd like to teach the gospel to. You'd like to reach out and try to lead to Jesus if you can. What I want to do is is take 30 seconds and bow for prayer. And in this prayer, I'm going to let you guys pray for about 30 seconds about the name of someone that you'd like to lead to Christ. And then 30 seconds after that, I'm going to say a prayer And then a couple of more points, and we'll wrap up this evening. Let's all bow. Let's be thinking of who we want to engage. Let's pray. Lord, help us to spend time looking for people like we should. As we think about all the names that are passing through our minds right now, help us to focus and not worry about trying to lead 1,500 people to you at once, but one at a time. Help us to choose a name, to choose a person to try to cultivate a relationship with so that we can cultivate a relationship with you on their behalf. We want to lead them to you. We want to see them in heaven. I pray that you'd give us wisdom and courage to know how to reach these people that are on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you to do something crazy. I want you to get out your phone for a second. Everybody get out your phone. And um, 
Get out your reminders or your alarms if you choose, your reminder app. I want you to set a reminder and I want you, what I want you to do is the person's name that you just were thinking about, I want you to title the reminder that person's name. So if it's Jennifer, you would title that reminder Jennifer. And I want you to set it to remind you every day at 10.02 a.m. That's random, but we'll talk about that in a minute. 10.02 a.m., so title it Jennifer or whatever your person's name is and get it to repeat every day at 10.02. Why 10.02 a.m.? Luke 10, verse two. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Why are we doing this? Well, number one, why are we putting it in our clock? Number one, how great is it that at 10.02 a.m. tomorrow, all of us will be praying for that individual. But also in this verse, it's talking about praying for the laborers. So let's pray for one another. The people that we're gonna go to work with, the people that we're gonna go to school with at 10.02 tomorrow, we'll all be reminded to pray for them. We'll have that communion together. We'll all be praying together as a family. But the other reason I wanted you to do that is because time, time represents, well, clock represents a time and time we can't afford to waste. I'm not sure this, this illustration does, does it justice, does the importance of time justice, but I want you to picture this. I want you to picture a circular maze and the person, a person that you care about a whole lot, a person that you love and care for is in the very center of that maze. Maybe it's the person's name you just wrote into your phone. But the person that you love and care for is in the middle of that maze. And this maze has two entrances. And at one entrance, you stand. And at another entrance, a hungry lion stands. All of a sudden, the entrance to the maze, the door flies open, and it's a race. Who will get there first? You see, that's the reality about looking for people. We're not the only ones looking. Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. How incredible would it be if tonight at this beginning of a new school year, We like things that are new. We like to have new beginnings. How great would it be to begin a new life with Christ? Maybe you've been thinking about that for a long time and you just put off that decision. Don't put it off anymore. It's time to come home. Maybe you've gotten disengaged from doing God's work. You've gotten a little sidetracked. You haven't been working for him like you should. It's time to come home. Jesus will take you. If you have any need, please come as together we stand and sing.